Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 88, Q and AI. <laughs> I think yeah. this is fun way to put it because we are going to bring up after we do the q a first because we we're going to give time to the humans that have interacted with us first that's what i think this is what we decided to do here um, well if we, we start were... taking questions from from ai or if we get ai questions in i think that's going to be a different problem yeah <laughs> that's a whole different problem when ai starts joining the live stream and asking questions we'll deal with that problem when it arises someone's yeah. going to connect it to the chat <laughs> i feel it happening um we also have two ways that people give us feedback. It's feedback at the homelab.show. We've been trying to promote that to make it easier for you to interact with us and send us uh, emails. Uh, please frame them in the form of questions like the uh, like you're playing Jeopardy. <laughs> so because sometimes some people wrote a lot and we're we're trying to decipher it's a question or not. But hey, we still like hearing reviews. Sometimes just sharing a short experience on things is fine as well. Um, also, there is a form that you can fill out that goes to a doc that uh, is still available on the site for now. I, I we're, we're trying to decide which is the best way to handle the feedback on the show, but nonetheless, we love hearing from you. And uh, what's the first question we want to start with, Jay? So, yep, we're going to get into Q and A. So let's do it. Um, so, in no particular order, because I'm not as organized as I want to be today. <laughs> um, so, one person asked, uh, Michael asked us in reference to episode eighty where I'm talking about um, sysprep, because I, I used to ha uh, actually be a Windows admin before getting into Linux, so I have some knowledge there. So I mentioned sysprep, and then Michael asked if there's something that you have to do for um, Linux machines to generalize them before taking an image much in the same way you do with Windows. And the answer is yes, but not it's not as required. It's not as like demanding. Whereas, you know, Windows systems, you know, they have the registry, they have all these different things. And um, if you if you try to clone a Windows install from one install to another, it might work fine, but it may not. Um, that's what sysprep kind of helps you take care of. But on Linux, you could just do nothing and it would work just fine. Although you would have some side effects, like perhaps the same IP address being assigned or um, host key mismatches and things like that. So there's a few things that you should do. And one of those is to reset your SSH host keys. I like to delete the command history on any user that's in the image. You don't have to do that. I also like to empty, empty log files. You don't have to do that. But I would say the least you should do is generalize your SSH keys or the host keys. Because if you don't do that, then every machine you set up is going to give you that uh, snarky message from SSH, which is actually normally a good thing if you see this, that it's warning you about it, but it'll be a false positive and tell you that there could be a man in the middle attack. And no, there's not. It's just the same host keys are on every machine because they're in the image. So right. we've covered this in more detail in a previous episode, and there's also a video on my channel that will go over this. I think there might even be a few that covers this. So um, the answer is yes, but it you don't have to do as much. So I guess I'll, that's where I'll leave it. Yeah, it's a whole lot simpler cloning Linux. Um, yep. And the lack of the licensing is also makes it easier because it gets further complicated with Windows and uh, license activation based on hardware changes, et cetera. So, yep, it sure does. See, licenses complicate all these things, this weird way they do it. Yeah, legal stuff, right? It's always legal. Legal stuff. stuff. Lawyers, just keep them out of the home lab, keep them out right. of your lab. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you are a lawyer, then you can still work on your, your home lab and still be a lawyer. But, um, I'll cover uh, line 170 here. The uh, Tom and Jay really enjoy the show. It would be great to get some Kubernetes content, a couple suggestions. And they dive into some really bigger topics like Longhorn and Cilium and Grafana and running K8s. 
Um, I, me and Jay aren't in depth Kubernetes people, but Techno Tim, our friend, is. He does this for a living. He's covered like every topic this person had mentioned in the question is actually yep. something that Tim already has a video on and is covered in depth. And he's well, I would say substantially more well versed than me. Um, was he a little more well versed than you? I mean, you you do more Kubernetes so, than I do. I don't know where the I, I am to answer that question. I don't know. Um, he's very talented and he knows a lot. That's what I do know. Um, I do cover Kubernetes on my channel. Mm -hmm. And um, right now there's like a soft pause on my coverage of it because I'm currently in OpenStack land because I have that series uploading. But sometime after that, I'm going to start diving into more Kubernetes content on my channel. But you don't have to wait for me to do it because Techno Tim has content on it right now. So if you have an appetite for it right now and you don't want to wait for me to do it, then absolutely check out is and even if I do have videos on my channel, watch watch both channels. Why even watch yeah. this one? Watch them all. And one of the things me and Jay have been working on in, in building what we will call our team of friends, they're trusted other YouTubers that we can definitively tell you because they work in the industry, they're industry professionals, they aren't just YouTubers, they're someone who actually does this for a living. So their knowledge on it is very concise. They're not just shooting from the hip. They didn't just read the book yesterday, and make a YouTube video today. Uh, Techno Tim actually has a job doing these things and building automation systems. So it's not just a hobby, uh, which is why his videos are so accurate. I've certainly watched a few of them because he's got some really yep. solid intel on there. So um, when we say watch him, we don't mean it like maybe he's okay or good at it. He, we actually will vet him to say, yes, he's really talented uh, and has great information on there. So. Yeah. yeah and, and just other, some other random recommendations. Veronica explains yep. um, is a, is a great one to, to check out Jeff Gearling. Uh, I don't even know if I need to say that. Does, is there anyone? Everyone knows. Craft computing yeah. and, and there's, there's others. Uh, maybe one day we're actually just going to come up, up with a list of, YouTube yeah. channels that we like. But if you look at our YouTube channels and look at uh the featured channels or whatever, yep. you'll 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 get a list from right there. We might come up with a more formal place, but for right now we have that on there. So yeah, we're we're working on the back end to bring you eventually we want to put ourselves all in one page so you can say, hey, these are all, you know, we're all in because we do all talk and uh, we're all like the same group of friends that all care about teaching you some of the best stuff. And I see someone through level one text. Yes, Wendell's absolutely a friend of the channel. Oh chain. my God, how did I forget? See, this is the problem. Yeah. Like I mentioned, this is why it's gonna go, eventually it'll end up on a website yeah. with a list. <laughs> yeah, that's why we need a list because I'm always going to forget somebody and then feel bad about mm -hmm. it. Um, Let's see. What's the next one we have here? Oh, I think that might have been something about something I mentioned here. Um, let me I've always turn on wrapping because the questions always go off the page. So let me fix that here. Um, okay. So this one is in, in regards to the um, of Home Assistant and the tool that I mentioned regarding integrating it with a Windows system because, yep. you know, no judgment. You might have a Windows install, doesn't matter. Um, everyone's in charge of what software they use in their own home lab. And if you do use Home Assistant, which I also use, and Windows, then there's absolutely something to um, look into there. I'm just trying to remember the name of it. And I think what I'll do is just maybe um, during another question, I'll Google it and just try to remember, because I don't remember the name 
um, being very memorable. Either that or I'm just forgetful. But um, I'll definitely make sure that the answer to that question exists before the end of the podcast. But definitely uh, something that I would recommend. And I did list, you sent it to me last week and I made mm-hmm. sure to add it to the show notes for last oh, week. Oh, you did? So, yeah, it is, in, it is in the show notes of the home, um, of that Home Lab show where you talked about Home Assistant. So that's definitely in there. Okay. So um, yeah, there you go. So check out that one. That was, was that our previous episode, I think? Yeah, last episode. Yep. 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 Okay. So check check out our previous episode and um, yeah, I'll have the answer there. And basically from what I remember, it's a service that runs kind of like any other Windows service and it allows communication between Home Assistant and Windows. And there's a lot of things that you could do with it. I, I never really kind of looked into it very deeply other than a one-off thing that I needed to do. But I, I think somebody who has a you know more of a need for it would probably do a lot more with it than I've ever done. Yeah. Um, the next one is going to be the VLAN one. Should we talk about that one? That's a that's a big question. Yeah. You know, this is something that I think I I ran into at one point early on, and I, I wonder if this is there's cert- certain growing pains. I don't know if I should call them growing pains, but maybe just like milestones right when you're when you first get into home lab and and you start with one server then you end up uh with a entire data center um but one of those is trying to figure out how to um create your network and it's one of those things you want to do if you can at the very beginning and have the design you know already created and just go along with that you never have to go back and fix anything the problem is most people are learning and that's why they have a home lab so they're they may not know how to carve up their IPs or networks and things or have a good idea. But the actual question is, um, when is when is it the case that you have too many VLANs? Is it less, is more? Should you have a bunch? And I mean, what's the right number here? And, and my answer is not much of an answer, to be honest, but it, it's how I feel. Each VLAN has to exist for a reason. When you first get started with the VLANs, it's like a superpower. Like if it's something that you didn't understand, but then that one day comes and you're like, oh my gosh, I got it. I totally get it now. And it just clicks in your mind. Then it's just that excitement around understanding something. You just want to like install it on everything or use it everywhere. Next thing you know, you have 200 VLANs. Um, but the actual thing is each VLAN should be should have a purpose. So every time you create a VLAN, don't just create them for the sake of creating them. Create them if you have a purpose. And sometimes security is the best way to go because you just base it around security you want to keep things segregated and that's a great place to start. And don't go too far with it. I've covered this before in my PFSense setup for home. I, I've had a lot of feedback, if you will, where people say mm-hmm. you didn't create 30 VLANs like I did. And the problem is those are sometimes the people who end up posting all over the forums going, how do I manage all the VLANs? And by right. the way, nothing talks to me. I, I put every device on its own network, but I need some of these devices to talk to each other. And then they spend a lot of time figuring out that once you start setting up separate subnets, and that's really what you're doing here, some mm-hmm. devices may not, depending on the device, and it varies in those famous words, of it depends do those devices allow communication no matter what firewall rules and sometimes there's helper apps to get the data across there but for the most part stick all your iot on one thing and have maybe more trusted devices on another and maybe your most trusted devices you know in yet another security network now this can be very important because the thing that we preach about here on the home lab actually happened at corporate level scale just a few days ago, um, which was a zero day in a product. So as we talk about when you publicly expose something, 
what if there's a zero day? And, uh, you know, what if came true for some very large companies? And that's because a product that was public facing that sits on a lot of companies' networks. Now, I know uh, two tales here, I can tell you. A company that survived and a company that just had a big, large disclosure um, because they're publicly traded because they didn't uh, quite, they survived it, but um, it's a much bigger mess. What happens is when one of these public facing devices is breached, where is that lateral movement? That's what you're usually right. trying to protect from when you segregate your network is lateral movement. So devices reaching out and what if someone poisoned where that device reaches out to so something can get back in? That's a rare, but could happen. But then where could it go? Like, let's talk about security cameras. Where can it go? Well, I don't give the opportunity for the security cameras to reach out, but maybe you used a UV camera that needs internet and it does reach out. And then somehow it laterally can move side to side. Well, don't put it next to your computer, but then again, also keep a firewall on your computer as good measure because right. that's a good thing to do. It all comes down to what you need to segment and how you want to prevent some of that potential lateral movement from happening, but don't go overboard with it. That's our best <laughs> advice on it. Uh, you, you need as many separate networks with security as you need, as you can handle, and as uh, doesn't aggravate other users that may share the network with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give a perfect example of why this is this is a great idea because you always think that one of the things that that we mentioned on this podcast and and what's mentioned on the Enterprise Linux Security podcast, you know, it's just oh that sucks that it happened to that person. That, that must have been a bad day. But not enough people think that something could happen to them. So when we get, we bring it back to VLANs. You want to separate things. And I had this this situation and I was going to bring this up in the review for the a uh, Mycroft Mark II device that is now not going to happen because I'm not going to be reviewing it for obvious reasons. But I do have one. And at one point, I was just sitting down editing video and I heard background noise. And I'm like, what is going on? I heard this super loud fan. I'm like, everything else is off. And I look over, it's the Mycroft. It's, it's the actual Mycroft unit, the Mark II fans going crazy. And then on the display comes this FBI warning. Oh, yeah. The computer has been seized <laughs> and um, locked and all that. And I knew exactly what that was the minute that I saw it. And that would have been really bad because, I mean, it is bad. But I had I have all of my IoT devices on a dedicated IoT VLAN, including the Mark II. And there's no rules to allow anything there to talk to anything else. So even though that sucks... Nothing else happened. That device, theoretically, if it was built to do that, could have contacted other devices on my network. It started crawling around. And next thing you know, everything is probably crypto lockered. But nothing happened except for that one thing because it's on that VLAN. It can't get to anything else. It can only get out to the internet. So I saw it happen, pulled the network cable, um, wiped everything, which I shouldn't have done because I probably would have wanted to explore exactly how, it, how that worked. But the point is... If I didn't have that VLAN, that would have been a bigger problem. And I think that's the best way to think about this is what's the worst thing that could happen if someone breaks into your main computer? What else would they be able to access? And some things you need to access, like your printer, for example. You want to print, don't you? So you have to be able to access that from your, your computer. But other things, maybe just, they just need to go out to the internet and be set, you know, segregated in some way. That's the, that's the way to think about it. How yeah. do you want to carve that up? How do you want to separate things to minimize your workload, not create a bigger support service, but just make things more stable and secure? That's the goal. Right. And the question of how do you decide what's IoT? 
Well, that's a little bit fuzzy because I often have told people that your phone is IoT and it meets people, those people into an immediate panic. But my phone is my precious. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. Your phone is, you know, and most likely Android or iPhone. And you probably wanted to talk to your, let's say, Chromecast, because that is literally my use case. I have a Chromecast attached to my TV. I have my phone on that same network. I have MB on that same network. Why? Because they are all IoT devices to me. Yes, that does include MB that runs on my NAS that talks to it because I would like MB to talk to my Chromecast and I like to control that via my phone. That is all one big happy IoT family because it works well together. Trying to separate out your phone, what, do you, what attack are you trying to? Your phone is meant to be, so to speak, in a hostile environment where, yeah, there's the potential that someone's going to take over my Chromecast. But who's going to really take over my Chromecast? Is Google going to send commands down from the cloud and scan my network for my phone that they also happen to own and then try to do it. At some point you're getting to levels of ridiculousness. Um, and that's not where your threat models are coming from. They're, they're just not as prevalent there, especially when you have trusted brands, trust as in, I don't give them privacy trust. I trust them with security. So let's talk about what type of trust we're saying here. I trust that Google is not good for privacy. I think they're good at security because they don't like uh, anyone else but them having all my private data. So just yep. think about how those threats are before you define it. And, and if you are using random things you found on Amazon that has a weird name, that is the scary IoT stuff that has weird firmware on it. That can go on a completely separate network unless it needs to. I generally don't even want toasters or refrigerators on my network. Um, but if you feel insistent that your washing machine and toaster need to be on the network, maybe you do want an appliance network. So those can be considered oh. IoT. Then you could have a situation where the the fridge, which is the thing that you put your spam in, ends up sending you spam. That, that's not a situation you want to be in the middle of. Um, as far as like where to draw the separation between IoT and not IoT, that's a whole nother topic in and of itself. But what I will say, possible thought experiments there, if you have to jailbreak it to SSH into it, it's IoT, okay? <laughs> if you had to... If you, you were the one that installed the operating system yourself, it probably isn't, but it still could be if you're the kind of person that builds your own IoT devices, because you know we do that kind of thing. But if you take all those edge, case, uh, edge cases away from it, if you have to jailbreak it, SSH into it, it's IoT, plain and simple. If you um, haven't or, or what, weren't able to install the operating system yourself if you wanted to, and you had to jailbreak it just to put a different image on it, that's also IoT. And I think that probably covers, what, 90% of yep. the edge cases, I think? And I have printers, and we do this for businesses as well, putting printers on the same mm -hmm. network as the computers because I, I don't hate myself. Um, and the, the statistical likelihood that a printer would become the attack point is not, you know, it's not a zero likeliness, but hopefully, one, don't open a printer to the outside world, so no one right. should be accessing it besides local computers. And if someone were to take over the printer, that means somehow they got on a local computer anyways to try to take over the printer. Well, the printer is less powerful than the local computers. That's why most attacks start from a breach in the computer. They Threat actors aren't as likely to. And hold on, I got this really powerful, uh, nice i7 workstation with 32 gigs of RAM. Let me wander over to this really <laughs> low-powered printer to, to launch my attacks from. Uh, if they're on your network, they're going to launch attacks from the device they compromise. It's easier to control. So this a few thoughts around that. So One, one thought about printers. Um, I don't want them to be cloud, anything to be cloud-enabled if, if you can help it. Yeah. But there's a way you can use that to your advantage, though. If you buy a printer that is cloud-enabled, then what you can do 
is literally segregate that thing, put it on its on a different VLAN. Do not let do not let any computer talk to it because it could be accessed from the internet, right? So make your printer go out to the internet. Allow that. Don't allow it to talk to anything else. And if your computer has to go out to the internet and then back in to print to the printer you're not going to notice a delay. Obviously, a company with a lot of people probably wouldn't want to do that. But for home users, mm -hmm. you know, if it's cloud enabled, great. You could print to the from the internet, print from the internet. Because if there's a firewall rule in between your printer and your computer, your printer is going to think that there's nothing else on the network. Your computer is going to think there's no local printer. That's fine. They'll go out to the internet and meet each other there, and then it'll be more secure. But um, then again, um, that's an old, another rabbit hole. Um, Everything is cloud enabled nowadays, and I'm not sure I like that. Yeah, and yeah. I'm positive HP is working on an even worse way to implement this. If there's something they've they've become skilled at, it's making worse and worse printers. I've, yeah, I miss the early days of HP when they were a good company. I mean, like 20 years ago, like, and I still have one of those printers from 20 years ago, and it still works because you know, uh, nonetheless. Yeah. <clears throat> the um. One of them I'll, I'll quickly address is someone asked a question. They have a bunch of domains and they said, can I monetize these as in, can I use all my home lab stuff to start like some type of hosting because they have a fast connection and a lot of stuff in their home lab. That's um, off topic a little bit from home lab, but from just a quick concepts, I'll at least address it. Um, it's a lot more complicated than you think from the business side of the liability you may take on by hosting yeah. things. What if you suffer a breach? Which could you be sued? How would you be held liable? It's not about that. Uh, could you do it? Yeah, sure. You can spin up uh, some of that storage you have, but you also compared to hosting in a data center, you're not going to offer or be able to offer, I should say, the redundancy, the multi-location for the data and the resiliency of what if something happens at your single location. So that was an odd question, but um, I, I think it's interesting to think about because the home lab is not necessarily, unless you're working towards a job, a money maker for you, uh, but it's also not easy to turn into a money maker. Maybe hosting some gaming servers or something might be more profitable amongst friends where you have a friendly agreement. But yeah, it's to do it is going to be a little bit more complicated than just the technology side of it. It's the resiliency. It's the legal problems you may have. And on top of all that, you got to market it, get people to come to the service and use your service over a cheap services already out there because right now storage generally speaking in a lot of cloud services and they're not that expensive so you know can you compete or make money at that level usually it's the management is where you can make money uh so if you use those skills you learn in home lab to get even a part-time job to help feed your home lab <laughs> and, and justify buying more hardware to test on that justifies some job skills that brings you back to you know the whole cycle there <laughs> the other thing about this too that you have to, and I'm not encouraging anyone to not go into business. I'm just letting you know one of the things you will run into if you you try to do that. And and again, do it if you want to. And and I I would love to do it myself. You just have to be under, you have to know the fact that you are going to deal with some anxiety, some stress you yeah. didn't expect. And what I mean in particular is when you have somebody who's asking you to provide services for them. They're asking you to do that because they don't know how to do it. If they did, they would do it themselves. They're asking you to do it because they want someone to do it that knows how to do it. And their understanding of how these things work is going to be severely different than reality to the point where you're, you're constantly correcting people. And the best example of this is I remember a client who wanted, um, who, actually, who actually was upset because the um, they wanted two sites connected, but without internet 
between them, without VPN between them. And I'm thinking, how do you want me to accomplish that? Buy a leased line or something, right? But they feel or felt that there was a way to still do it. No matter how many times I told them it doesn't really work that way, it was uh, it, it was uh, qu quite a frustrating experience. The things like that happen all the time, so it, it's fine if, if you know that's going to happen. But just keep that in mind. It, it's you know these pe these people don't know how to do this stuff that that we do. So uh, we will be explaining quite a bit of things to them if we go into that business. So yeah, um, question, and I think this is the last question we have. But question for you, Jay, because you were trying to think of the name before the show. Is it Tarsnap? Yes. Okay. Now we can now we can answer that question. Now we, answer and we know the answer. Um, <laughs> you, now, I'm giving the answer. We got to start with the question now. <laughs> oh right. Um, so you're referring to the one that has uh, the individual has BSD on his um, network. Um, yes. Yeah. So um, it, it was a lot. One of the longer messages, but the my what my understanding of the the problem here is that Proxmox backup system, according to uh, Andrew, who wrote in the question, doesn't support free BSD. And I'll just uh, I'll just uh, take his word for it because I never looked into that. I, I personally don't use BSD, so people that that do use it will know more than me, obviously. But um, if that's true that it doesn't work with BSD, then Tarsnap might be a great way to go for that. And I think that's something that BSD people, um, last I looked anyway, really do enjoy. And um, if I remember correctly, it's not specific to FreeBSD or or anything. I think it uh, works on Linux as well. Um, again, double check me on this. It's been like probably four years since I looked into this, but yeah. it was something that came very highly recommended. And um, isn't it true that George Lucas, um, Michael I, Lucas, Michael Lucas. Lucas. <laughs> George <laughs> Lucas is something else. <laughs> um, yeah, um, no, he wrote a book on that, right? Yeah, I believe yeah. he has a book on it. Uh, by the way, if you haven't read um, Michael Lucas's books, please, you know, go ahead and do so. We've recommended him numerous times. Uh, because, well, he's got the definitive guide on a lot of things like SSH and all kinds of fun stuff and technology. He's a good writer for all that. Uh, it's called Tarsnap Mastery. Yes. You, uh, he has you know Mastery, Tarsnap Mastery. He's got a yep. theme going. <laughs> got a theme going. Uh, check out that book. Uh, his SSH Mastery book was uh, is so far my personal favorite. It tells you things about SSH you, you never knew it could do. But Tarsnap is definitely one of the things. I'm looking at the book right here. So. Um, if that's something that helps, I, I hope it helps. Yes. But we should reach out to Michael Lucas to be a guest. I think so. We talk about him like all the time and nobody knows. Uh, I mean, some a lot of people do know, but I know there's some people that don't. So mm -hmm. probably so. should uh, get him on. Yeah. Um, does that conclude all the questions? I think we got them all. Um, I think it does for the most part, at least. But yeah, I, I think yeah. that pretty much covers it. All right. Now <clears throat> let's pivot over to chat GPT. And why is it in a Q&A show? Well, Honestly, I think it's a great place to ask questions, to, right. but, but, but I know it's not a hundred percent. So I'm not saying to trust it, but where I do find the middle ground. So I've been playing with it more and more and I haven't done a video on it because I'm annoyed by things that are overhyped. If it's overhyped, right. it's probably just overhyped. It's companies trying to make money on it, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, my understanding, the launch of Bing had an epic failure of just straight up giving wrong information. I had ChatGPT write me a biography about myself, which is easily fact-checked with a quick Google search. That's and wrong. Google was right and ChatGPT is wrong. So we're, we're going to say it gets a lot of things wrong. But there is a lot of things it gets right. And one of them that I found really interesting as a use case is writing frameworks for code. 
Now, I say frameworks, but it'll actually write some code and then explain what the code does to you. So ChatGPT from a code Q&A, like, hey, I need a bash script to do this, this, and this. And it will create annotated code. I mean, like it puts nice comments in there to explain what each section does. You can also work with it to keep iterating till you understand the code and maybe ask what this section of code does. The fact that you can go back and forth with that with ChatGTP makes it really interesting from a home lab standpoint, especially when you're getting started. Me and Jay talk about using Ansible or Bash scripts and things like that. But when you are just getting started with a home lab, this is a blank sheet of paper that you're staring at going, man, what's the first thing I type? What's the first couple? What is a shebang? Why would I put that there? And those are questions it seems to know very well. It actually does programming well because when it comes to things that are extremely deterministic and not really opinion, like code that works, it seems to understand it very well. I have a video linked down below from a channel many of you probably follow, Dave's Garage. Dave's a longtime uh, programmer for Microsoft. And I thought he did just a great job of explaining how to use ChatGPT to write code. He has it doing a few different things. He even talks about how he wrote the code. Then he compared to what ChatGPT wrote based on the concept he asked. Um, and then he translated it into different languages, which is actually kind of fun too, because you can say, write this in Python, write this in Bash. Uh, I think it's just one of those things that I really thought about it when I started using it because I started writing some PowerShell um, that I'm not very good at, but ChatGPT wrote a PowerShell for this. Then you can say, write a menu. Then I wrote some uh, bash scripts. I said, you know, and make this bash script compatible for the thing it has to do. I want this package to install, but I want to check first if it's a Ubuntu-based install or a Debian-based install. And it made all the different parameters in there. You can even have it, you know, generate some menus and things like that. This is a great framework for you to start putting it together and not have that really how do I start type feeling? I thought that was cool because it really hmm. gave me the base I wanted. And, you know, if you're, if you're old hat at this, sure. You, you're going, why would I use this? But even uh, watch Dave's video and he'll even show you, you know, a guy who is a long time coder knows many languages uh, very fluently was still impressed and thought of all the great ways to use it. And I think his, his video is not hyped at all. It is very concise and walks you through code examples. And uh, it was kind of fun. Yeah, that sounds fun. And I haven't used chat GPT yet. Um, I've been, you know, very, very deep in video production. But, I, you know, hearing you talk about it, I'm kind of tempted to just ask it to develop a proper sequel to Chrono Trigger. Just see what happens. Because yeah. <laughs> we need that sequel. Come on. <laughs> Chrono Cross is good, but it wasn't Chrono Trigger. Maybe chat GPT can help. Just don't ask it to create a self-aware AI bot that, um, you know, named Jarvis that'll take over the world. Now, don't do that. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, of course I joke. But, it, it, you know, there's something to be said about looking at code examples. And if that helps, I think that might be a good tool for that. Yeah, I in. It, you can ask a question, explain it. You can help with the regex. And I don't do regex often enough. So I'm, I actually have a bunch of little things I need uh, chat GPT to do. And once I have a lot of these done, I might make a video on it. But I, I just have, I know what I want extracted, but I know there's going to be a lot of parameters because the way this certain log comes through. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to feed it those logs and say, this is what I want out of these logs is this particular thing and see how it writes the regex for it or some type of parser for it. And um, I have a couple 
tasks like that. And then, of course, maybe I'll post them all on GitHub and it'll be kind of handy. But I, I just really thought this was worthwhile for the Homelab people, especially because it's mm -hmm. free. Um, there are times when you get the high usage stuff. They do have a subscription now if you want to avoid that. But for the most part, keep trying. You, you'll hit it for free. And I think it's a good place to get started. Now, where you shouldn't use ChatGPT, I, I will go back to this. I asked it some questions like, let's compare Synology versus TrueNAS. And it got some things wrong right away. Um, I did try to ask it to do some insecure things because you can sometimes coax it into explaining a bad topic badly. Uh, like, hey, tell me why it's a great idea to open up Windows RDP. I was actually shocked. I played around with it and I was unable to. It kept telling me, no, it's not a good idea. It'll argue. Oh, with that's you. good. That's good. Yeah. Well, I tried to ask it, tell me why it's a good idea. Sometimes you can try and coax it into stuff. You got to remember, it can be very biased because if you, you could tell me, you could ask it a question that you're leaning into a bias and it can give you bias confirmation because you asked it to say, tell me why this is great. Um, or if you started, tell me why this is bad. So those things are where ChatGPT will lead you off the path and also hmm. can be inaccurate. But from that coding standpoint, just bring it back to that coding stuff. I think it does a really killer job on that. That is, and I think for the home lab, um, I want to play with it and see how it writes Ansible and things like that. Can it write Ansible playbooks? Create a playbook that does these things and will it create the base for that? And once you have the base, you can go, oh, I think I understand the structure and start iterating forward on it. I think it's just a, a handy tool that's free to use in the home lab and you know, start building your automations with it. Yeah, but but if it's going to lead us down a different path, that would mean it's manipulating us. And if AI is manipulating us, that's a really bad sign. Hmm. No, um, yeah, ChatGPT is, has a lot of fans, and I think it's even going to be, if I'm not mistaken, uh, integrated into Opera at some point. I'm not sure how I feel about that because I think the option should be there for everyone that wants it, as long as it's not stealing CPU cycles when it's idle or something. That's fine. But yeah, um, apparently Opera thinks enough of it to put it in the browser. And I, I asked a question about Opera the other day, <laughs> just in passing. But I'm still a Firefox user, but I keep track of the other browsers, and it looks like they're going to be maybe including that soon. Yeah. I see someone says, I use ChatGPT recently at my job to write a script that mails me when a new file arrives on our FTP. Wow, you're using FTP still, but nonetheless, awesome that it worked flawlessly. <laughs> Just be really careful about um, if, if you're creating a solution in, in the, you know, in, in public view that it, the way it learned might have been from someone else's code or something. And there could be issues with that. Um I don't really know how that's going to play out because you see these people are, you know, trying to sue AI companies and all that. Um, yeah. But but then again, just just be careful that you know if you're using code that might have been written exactly the same way as someone else's program, that could be a potential issue. But then again, I think a good counter argument is there's a, there's a finite number of ways to develop an if statement, right? Yes. So, yeah. Exactly. Um. Someone asked the question in the chat too. Any recommendations for a for you PC rack mount case? Um, I do have one. If you look at my recent build for my XCPNG Ryzen, if you put that in, you'll find a build. Uh, you'll find a for you case that we used. I liked it. It worked. I, I I'm not particularly fond of any for you case. I've not. I didn't research them a lot. My staff did, and they chose that one. So I, I can't. I can't give you like all the parameters of of what made them choose that case. But everything fit in it. That was enough. <laughs> I could give you one thing that could have been it. What I've um, actually encountered is that you know these will be basically ATX cases. So you get a you know motherboard from wherever it'll fit. So that that part's pretty easy. The parts will fit in there. But where you'll run into an issue often is with the power supply 
Um, if you buy a case without a power supply, a server case without a power supply, it'll often be proprietary and you just won't find one that works. You could probably fit something in there, but the fan might be in the wrong spot. They're very particular. The 4U cases generally tend to support, most often they do anyway, actual ATX power supplies. So you don't have to worry about that, but absolutely look into that first before you buy it. And, and if you're trying to save money by getting one without a power supply, if it's less than 4U, do not bother with that. Get it with the power supply. You'll save yourself weeks of waiting for a power supply from a very super specific place to arrive in the mail. Um, yeah. The other thing, when it comes to server chassis, I haven't looked at all of them. I looked at quite a few of them. And I would say the best you could probably get at this point, if I'm being generous, is a score I would give a 7 out of 10 for probably the best of the cases I use. None of them are like, oh my gosh, this is the best case I've ever used with like the perfect cable management and perfect everything. I've never felt that way. And I've tried a bunch of these. Um, they're, they get the job done. Um, they look good. You know, you can have blue ones, gray ones, like I've done in my videos. But on the inside, though, it can be a little bit of a challenge because they haven't, uh, you, you'll see what I mean. It's doable, but yeah, if you had an average PC case in the past, that's pretty much the same thing here. Yeah, there we go. Someone said we did, someone needs to write case GPT, your case choosing software. It's an AI to choose your case. <laughs> that, that would be fine. They'll probably just tell you to build your own. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But I've seen someone else say they used GPT for IP tables recently. That's another one. You know, asking some of those questions is probably relevant if you're not sure how to structure some of those commands. Um, it, it does formatting really well. So if you need your, I, I did have it produce some YAML files for like the network configs in uh, Ubuntu. And, and it told, one of the things I thought was interesting is when I had it create the YAML file for that, at the end, after it created the code, it's a little copy button, so you can just copy and paste it. It then lets you know, once you've done this, you need to run the network apply. I like that it adds the extra context, like here's the YAML code, but by the way, um, those are those little helpful hints because if you change it, it doesn't change your network settings. It's not until you do the network apply settings. So it gives you some of that extra context on there for that. And um, that can be very helpful. Like editing the yep. YAML file um, is easy. Creating one from scratch, you'll, you may get the formatting wrong if you've never created one before. <laughs> yeah, I've just try to get on chat GPT as we're recording. It's um, at capacity right now. Because what I wanted to do was just ask it to tell me a UDP joke. And if it comes back at the response, it's automatically wrong, no matter what it is. If it doesn't like close the browser tab immediately when I asked that question, it, it got it wrong. So, but I was just going to find out, but I'll, maybe I'll try that later. I was curious what yeah. it would do. <laughs> it's fun to play with. Um, yeah. Someone asked a question the uh, about drive pass through. I don't plan on making an updated video. So whatever video and documentation I have on drive pass through, and it's also documentation in, in the XCPNG forums on this, uh, or their, I'm sorry, their, their documentation has it. I don't plan on doing an updated video, but no, I would never use that in production either. It's fun for testing, but uh, there's plenty of discussion in my forums about all the problems people have with it. So uh, take that with a grain of salt. The, yeah, uh, yeah doing drive pass through is just, it, it's not standard. It's fun, hacky stuff you can do in the home lab. It's fun for learning, but you're also going to learn when it breaks. <laughs> you get a different kind of learning. So don't put anything critical on it. I, I did it as some experiments to show how you can do some testing, but I, I think I iterated right very clearly in the very beginning going, do not um, use this in a production environment. 
I'm just not a fan of pass through in any way, shape, or form. I always feel like there's always a better solution that people have at their disposal that may not be immediately apparent, but um, I I just don't, I feel like it's just too finicky, I guess is the best way to put it. It it can be. Um, you know, Wendell has a video, it's a good one called The Forbidden Router, and I do like the video, and he, he discusses the pros and cons of putting all of your eggs in one basket and building one machine to do it all. Mm-hmm. It, it's a fun experiment but it's also a house of cards because if one thing goes wrong now you can do controller pass-throughs and things like that but you're still doing you're you're taking and modifying it from normal like hey this is how we're going to use it and that's how you're going to see it in the business world to what home users do i i'm not going to say there's zero usage in the business world for it but there's very little it's very niche to do any type of pass-through generally they create a bunch of the same servers in the business world and we don't pass through things specifically now with graphics cards and uh kind of being passed through but it's usually done through sriov um where you're it's built in like it's a native Mm -hmm. and you're using like the specific cards that are for it that are expensive um kind of related serve the home just posted an article about the hardware when i know a lot of you if you follow home lab you follow serve the home uh they broke down the hardware that's being used by chat gpt the type of cards they use the nvidia Mm -hmm. processing cards um and i I like the way the article starts out many of you may not have seen these because these cards are hard to find in ten thousand dollars a piece and there there's this many of them in each server so each one of these servers has x amount number of cards in it um so but they kind of they do a dive into what that hardware looks like i wonder what the scalping price is on a ten thousand dollar msrp video card oh my gosh probably quite a bit that that's expensive i think that's probably outside the affordability of most home lab people speaking for myself at least yeah and and jeff from craft computing definitely covered this a few times when these as he's went down that rabbit hole he's got a whole series on getting cards to pass through and all the challenges on that he's probably got some of the most comprehensive when it comes to graphics cards um he's tested it not just on one hypervisor but a list of hypervisors so check out craft computing series if you want to um, go down the rabbit hole with Jeff of <laughs> all the different ways you can pass through cards. <laughs> yep, absolutely. If, if someone does have a $10,000 GPU MSRP in their home lab, let us know what you're using it for. I'd be really curious. Mm-hmm. I think the question here is directed at me as someone says, why have two ter- two two terabyte NVMEs when you're mostly using NFS? Because um, so I have the option of having yeah. local storage if want if I want it. And I have two of them because they're mirrored. So in my lab setup or that we're doing, or, or it was somewhat production, um, when you can lab things out uh, on a really fast local drive, it's local NVMEs are going to beat out even a 25 gig connection to your uh, storage server, unless your storage server is NVMe. So um, because our yep. storage servers are not, unfortunately, all NVMe, you know, no one's bought me one yet. No one, no one sent me a, super fast server so if any sponsors are listening wants to mail me an mvme server i'm here <laughs> but yeah that's yeah. great <laughs> i it's kind of one of the reasons why i i actually bought an eight terabyte nvme for video rendering for the cache and don't ask me how much it cost but but to your point yeah local storage is great there's a reason why i bought it but oh my gosh, an eight terabyte SSD is not for the faint of heart. At some point, it's going to be like, yeah, that's $20. It's eight terabytes. It's nothing. But right now, oh my God, pretty expensive. That can really add up. But man, is it fast. And uh, I think this is our last question here we'll answer, which is the person we kind of answered earlier. Maybe they hadn't joined, but I thank you for the uh, donation here. When is it better? One, to have more VLANs with dedicated purposes. 
i.e. NAS, NAS, uh, DNS, and NAS, or two fewer but complete VLANs as interface for each server on each VLAN uh, where access is needed with no need to hit the router. So we kind of cover this. Really. We won't go the in. same question, I think. That we yeah, it's the same, was the same person asking the same question. Yeah. I think they probably didn't join when we answered their question yeah. earlier. But um, we won't go into the whole VLAN discussion rant we just did about what is or isn't IoT. But mm-hmm. I would go with only as many as you need and don't overcomplicate your life by creating way too many. Micro segmentation is a headache. It sounds like a good idea. But once you start putting everything on there and making pinhole rules between all of these different VLANs, it's a management nightmare to keep things working. Um, or it's the thing you wanted to do because you wanted to learn how to pinhole every little thing. The reality is a lot of devices, and I've talked about this with Synologies and with TrueNAS, um, you can firewall the devices themselves and lock down ports. So you you can help minimize the lateral potential lateral movement just by putting the firewall on the NAS and switching it to on and locking down only what's needed and following principles of leaf privilege. Because if you're going to be punching holes between firewalls, you may as well have some of those devices on the same because it may be more convenient. So just don't go crazy with micro segmentation unless your goal is to, um, unless your goal is to uh, learn exactly how every service and you want it to route through the firewall, which by the way, as you route things to the firewall, you're putting more pressure on the firewall for performance. So that's something to consider, especially when you say, and this happens a lot. I tell people don't route your storage because once you start routing storage through the firewall, you end up with a lot of problems for storage. Generally speaking, like your iSCSI, your NFS and your SMB works best on the same network, not through the firewall. That's where you get a big headache. So is it practical to have something in a VLAN or is it cool? If it's just cool, I mean, if it's the only VLAN you want to create, fine, have fun. But focus on the practical. It's going to be security. Yeah. Maybe it'll simple simplify something. It has to have a, a purpose. You know, don't don't just check the box. Just yep. I want to solve this problem. Would VLAN be a way to solve that problem? If the answer is yes, go for it. Yep. And um uh, someone once going back to my MVMEs and my rise and build uh, XCPNG support software raid. So you set them up in a software mirror and they're mirrored. So they're good. Yep. Keeps easy. You don't need a special raid card. Mirror, all right. mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest raid of them all? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Feedback at the Home Lab Show. We love hearing from you. Uh, we do have some guest appearances. So we'll, we'll at least throw that out there. We um, are going to be talking about Linux shows in the future and doing some interviews and all kinds of fun stuff. So we got plenty more right. planned, but we like hearing from you. And uh, thank you for joining us. This was awesome. Yep, sure was. All right. Take care, everyone.